0: Welcome to episode 218 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Hilary Davidson, whose Her Last Breath is about to be published. Thank you for taking the time to join the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It is wonderful to be back.
0: Thank you again for agreeing to do this. I'm always so grateful to the writers who take the time. I, I know that in spite of the pandemic, you're writers' schedules for launches are incredibly busy with uh, interactive things. It's actually really
1: strange right now because so um, my last book came out right before the pandemic, which was obviously you know a terrible time for everyone for many reasons. But um, all of my events were canceled, and it was just kind of a mess. And some events sort of started popping up like late spring, sort of into the summer, and so I was doing some library events and noir at the bar and stuff. And now it's out of control. It's just um, and I mean that in a good way because I'm Mm -hmm. excited to do lots of events but um I've got sort of a book tour for this new book which is entirely virtual so doing events at a bunch of different stores and mostly with other writers but then I've got a bunch of panels that I'm doing Um, Just a whole slew on a BoucherCon panel and I'm not not even going to BoucherCon, but there are going to be some virtual BoucherCon panels and it's just sort of if you look at my schedule the next three weeks I don't think there's a day where You know, there's not a couple of things like that booked. But that said, you know, I love doing this. You know, I I joke that about 95% of my life is me in the corner of a room just with my imaginary friends. So I am delighted to hang out with other people.
0: My journalism conscience insists that I disclosed that you mentioned me in the acknowledgements for this book. I didn't know. I read the book straight through, though, after downloading the advanced reader's copy and finished it in bed. So it was quite late when I read the acknowledgments. And since seeing my name was the last thing I expected, I exclaimed, oh my God, waking up my husband, who since we live in LA, was wondering if we had had an earthquake. So I I, I don't wanna ask you why you did it, but I wanna profess my devout thank you.
1: No, I mean, honestly, Nancy, um, you know when when we were chatting a little while ago i mentioned that my book tour for don't look down was just completely cancelled that book came out right at the time that of- the pandemic happened. And, um, you know, I really appreciated people who were really kind and who, you know, reached out and interviewed me. And you were one of the people who did. And you really did a lot to feature the book. And honestly, because of everything else, like falling through, it, it meant even more than it normally would. So I, I really appreciated that. And, and I'm, I'm delighted that it meant a lot to you too.
0: It was um, quite an astounding moment. Ah, but now to the book thank you again but thank now to the book Uh, i i love epigraphs i i read them and i always like to look into the book as as to see what might have caused that epigraph to jump into your head but the one that opens part one of her last breath is devilishly clever it's from machiavelli who is devilishly clever everyone sees what you appear to be you really know who you are and so can you tell us about why why that one I mean as you read the part as you read part one you sort of see it but what did the epigraph come after you had started writing or was it one of the launch points
1: So I have to go back to my very nerdy uh, teenage years when um, I went to a very nerdy high school where we studied philosophy and politics and all kinds of things and so I read Machiavelli for the first time I think when I was 15 or 16 and I remember reading The Prince and making some notes about just quotes that really resonated with me and I actually had this like little notebook of quotes from books that I read that I just loved so much and that sort of stayed in my my head. And um, that was one of them. That was actually one of the things that just, you know, it really stuck in my head and made me sort of look at the world a little bit differently. And in writing the book, the epigraphs only come in at the end. So I sort of, I write the story and then, Kind of uh sort of towards the end, once I'm in editing, I start thinking about, you know, are there little extra bits that I want to add? And in this book, I really wanted to add an epigraph before each of the three um main sections of the book. And it felt just like nothing in the world fits so well as this Machiavelli quote, because if anything, you know, above all else, this book is about the difference between appearances and how things really are. And uh, in a very conscious way, people who are very much determined to create a certain impression, um, they want you to think of them in a certain way, they want to be perceived, you know, a particular way. And it's funny, because, you know, you're, talking about Machiavelli you know 500 years ago whatever but it feels in the social media age like even more relevant that it's not just famous people now who cultivate their image everybody is trying to do it through social media so it, it just feels like it really resonates in the time
0: that we're in. Well the story is told from two points of view uh, which you've certainly done in other books well multiple points of view in other books. And I have questions about that specifically in a bit, but it opens with uh, Deirdre, who is one of the novel's narrators, preparing to go to the funeral of her sister, Caro, Caroline, who had died suddenly, leaving behind a husband and a three and a half year old son. And the family dynamic is uh, complicated. Deirdre is at the church. She discovers she needs air. She leaves the church and receives an email from her dead sister. And I found that so creepy, in a good way. But I have to ask, because I know you researched this, can this sort of thing happen? Oh, yes. Oh, this was actually
1: maybe the craziest part of the book I didn't quite know what I was looking for I wanted to come up with a way for a letter to be delivered you know after death someone who knew they were going to die and deliver a letter and of course there are old-timey stories of people handwriting letters and you know posting them but I wanted to sort of see if this was, you know, could I do this in, in a faster way, basically? And there is a concept called a dead man switch, which if you Google that, you will find so many companies that will do this sort of thing. They will send out messages. You set it up however you want, so you can check in with them every month, every week, whenever, if you fail to check in, they will send out your messages. And they will also either send out your data if you've opted for that kind of function, or they will delete all of your data that you have hidden with them if you want. It's actually incredible, Um, but there are entire companies that are devoted to this kind of thing. So I thought almost when I was writing, like I'm coming up with such a clever idea. And yeah, of course there are very clever people who have already been doing this for a while, but yeah, in terms of um, setting this up in advance and having a mechanism where if you don't check in your messages would all go out,
0: that exists all over the world. Bunch of companies do that. Well, needless to say, it freaked Deidre out (sighs) in a a very big way and launches the story. Because in this letter, and it's not a spoiler, she accuses Theo, her now widower, of killing her. Right. And that sends Deidre off. And, And so when I mentioned that the story is told from two points of view, It's also told from Theo's point of view, who's Caro's widower. And these are two of the most delightfully unreliable narrators I have ever met. So can you talk a little bit about these two and how they balance each other out in there? And I say this with love, craziness. Right,
1: <laughs> absolutely. So I will. I will say that uh, the character of Deirdre was in my head from the very beginning. Um, she is the heart and soul of the book because. As much as I think you're right to call her an unreliable narrator, her grief is entirely real. Her oh, love for the yes. is entirely real, and so her motivations in the story are very uh, comprehensible and you know understandable. And even though as you get to know her, you realize she's hiding a lot from you, from the reader, that you don't really get into until the middle of the book. Um, that love and grief is very genuine and is kind of like um, maybe a, a pole star for her. And so, you know, it, it, pulls you on this journey for her. So when she gets the, the letter from her sister, and it's not spoilery at all, this is chapter one, so I feel like this is in, in no way a big revelation. But not only does Caroline mention that uh, she thinks her husband um, is going to harm her and maybe even kill her, but she says that he killed his first wife and got away with it. And this is a bombshell to Deirdre, who had no idea that her brother-in-law, Theo, had been married before. So there's also a little bit of doubt in Deirdre's mind at the beginning, where she's thinking, you know, could my sister have lost it? Like, like what could have happened to her? And so one of the first things that Dater does is she actually confronts Theo, and um, you know, gets the two of them alone and talks to him, and learns that actually, yeah, he was married before, and his first wife is dead. And while he does not admit to committing murder. Um, I, I made the decision that I thought it was important for the reader to also get inside Theo's head. Um, there are so many books about sort of bad husbands, and you see them from the outside and you see sort of their machinations and their bad actions. But I wanted readers to get inside Theo's head and sort of better understand what was going on there with him and with his entire dysfunctional family. And it started out like a challenge because I wasn't sure if I could sustain it. Um, When I started writing from Theo's perspective in the book, um, I think I wrote the first chapter, uh, his first chapter, which might be chapter three or four, just set in the church at the funeral. And I wasn't sure how much more I could do without giving you know, giving too much of the story away. And so it became this kind of challenge. I sort of did a chapter here and maybe 10 chapters later, another chapter there. But as I got to know him, in a weird way, I connected with this really damaged character too. And I wanted to show more from his side. So he actually became a bigger presence in the book. Um, You know, that sort of like the more I knew about him, the more I realized like, you know, Deirdre might be the beating heart of the story, but to really understand everything that's happened, you need to understand Theo too.
0: Theo was an excellent counterpoint. And it's always, I find it fascinating, and this is something I think is a hallmark of your work, is looking at the same, what we think are the same set of facts from different points of view. And you get this rounded, three-dimensional, visceral story from it and it's it's it is a it is a wonder uh it's a wonder to readers to anyone who's ever attempted to write it is an extraordinary wonder so kudos on that and you're absolutely right you want to hate theo and this is not a spoiler you want to hate theo but from that first chapter from his perspective you understand that there might be more to this than we think there is Right. And everybody, we should also mention, everybody in this story is damaged to a certain degree. Right. So much of the book, exactly. I mean, you know,
1: Carolyn and Deidre, you know, Theo, his sister Juliet, so, so much of the book is about sort of legacies of family trauma. You know, and partly I had in my mind, you know, families keep so many secrets. I think that's, not even unusual and it's not like a hallmark of you know a bad family or something every family has things that they don't want to talk about and don't want to address and in Deirdre's family it was, there was a legacy of physical abuse and that was mostly with her parents though as the story goes on you see that her sister also was physically um abused in Theo's family it's more subtle um it's not it's not really physical abuse um, very much at all. So much of it is psychological torture and uh, sort of like psychological terrorism almost where you're you're not even sure what reality you're living in because the set of facts that you think you know you're constantly having the rug pulled out from under you. You you can't trust people that you thought you could trust. Um, it, it's just like so damaging. So he, he is is a really um, damaged person, even though the kind of abuse is a different sort of abuse.
0: What just sprung into my head was uh, when it comes to Theo's father, uh, Machiavelli of the 21st right. century. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> he, he does like to he does like to move the pieces around on the chessboard. But you anticipate, as any good writer, and you are also a journalist. Uh, You've anticipated my next question, so thank you. The segue will be very easy. This is very much a story of the intersection of family and memory, uh, neither of which are necessarily reliable and are often surprising. So the epigraph intro to part two gives us a peek. It's from George Eliot, one of my favorite writers. No evil dooms us hopelessly except the evil we love and desire to continue in And make no effort to escape from, and so that was like a codependent creed. That was, you know, a brilliant opening to that part, and just sort of a brilliant insight into why people remain in codependent and damaging relationships.
1: Thank you. You know, for I think there's kind of you know an evolution as you go from one part of the book. To the next, because as you mentioned earlier, everyone in the book is damaged to some point, and by the middle of the book, you really start to see the contours. And I want to be careful not to be, um, you know, too spoilery or anything. But um, with Deirdre in chapter one, you see her very quickly being willing to become violent, and so some of the the damage and trauma in her is her own violence that you know she holds on to. Um, but that I don't think defines her and I don't think she wants it to define her. And I think in that section, I mean, you're right about codependence and you're right about why people stay in these relationships. Um, Deirdre's response has been to distance herself from her family as much as possible. That's sort of her self-preservation mechanism. And Theo has tried to do it as well, but maybe with less, Success. He's gotten away from the family business, but there's sort of always something that pulls him back. And ironically, the thing that pulled him back was, you know, his wife and son who got enmeshed with his family and were quite cozy in that dysfunctional family, and so it pulled him back. And I, you know, you mentioned Theo's father, who I think in the book, um, you know, it, it, you know, since since he's not, um, you know. I, think how to say this it's not a spoiler to talk about him and to talk about what a bad person he is because you know we ironically he wasn't responsible for um you know a lot of the terrible things in the book but he is such a horrific person because he does not want to change he doesn't want to be better he wants to control other people and that would be him till his dying day. And so you do have a contrast between characters who are trying to move forward, trying to do something better, and someone who is just like, no, this is my web and I'm very happy to stay here at the center of my web and just you know, keep on spinning, keep on lying, keep on doing all the damaging things that I do. Well,
0: like Machiavelli, he, he took a set of circumstances for which he was not responsible and uh, leveraged them. Right exactly you know, he got he got this set yeah. of circumstances and he mentally and emotionally how can I manipulate this yeah. to my advantage yeah. and uh, you know that in a way is uh, the machiavellian um, credo you know it's like right yeah. you he's, know, he's, I'm, not he's I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily the architect but how can I use this and so that, that made him and that, that made him a very Nefarious character. Yeah.
1: Everything that happens, no matter how awful, how bad, he will figure out a way how to use it. And it is just the most brutal thing about the character. There's, you know, there's actually a really um, kind of warm moment, a couple of warm moments actually between um, him and Deirdre. And, you know, when he's offering her help, it, in a lot of ways it's a really sincere offer because he loved his daughter in law. And you know, he there is this side of him where, you know, he, he does like to help people, but there's always a catch to always a <laughs> diabolical hook that, you know, if you take his help, he will own you. And so, you know, with, with Deirdre, it's sort of like she starts to, you know, fall into that and and then starts to feel like, yeah, you know, this is. This is a little bit, you know, someone is, my grandmother had a saying um, about things being too sweet to be wholesome. And that's a little bit like Deirdre's sense where it's like when someone just keeps offering you help and money and all these things, it's like they want something. <laughs> so, so what is his game?
0: And of course, that is the crux of the book. What are these games? Yes. And how exactly. are they played out? I want to mention that, that you include references to the pandemic in this novel. And you mentioned uh, at one point, actually before we started the recording, or before we started the podcast, that uh, your last book um, came out just as the pandemic was slamming into this country. So you include references to the pandemic in this novel. And while it's still active, the threat is passing in the book. And A, that's very optimistic. And B, were you slicing and dicing page proofs as the publisher wrested the manuscript from your hands?
1: <laughs> you know, that's a great question because I started writing the book in the second half of 2019 and it was finished and turned into my editor in June, 2020. So the world had turned upside down in you know that space of time. And, you know, the, the whole like first... Um, half of the book, or maybe even more than half of the book, maybe two thirds of the book, there was no pandemic, and then things started changing. And it was interesting because the temptation I think sometimes you know is just to focus on the story and say well this story could have happened in 2019 and so i can just ignore this but i live in new york city which was you know the epicenter of the pandemic last spring i live in manhattan i'm a few blocks away from two big hospitals that Um, it was, you know, sirens night and day. I remember there was a day that my husband and I thought maybe we'd go for a walk and we'd go by the East, the, um, East river Esplanade. And we did that. And we didn't realize that that was where they were hiding the refrigerator trucks, that all of the trucks that were lined up at the hospitals for the bodies. So it was in my mind, 24, seven, it was my reality, um, You know in in so many ways one of my brothers got covid and was hospitalized you know fortunately he did recover and all of that but it was it was like it touched me very personally and i didn't feel like i could ignore it and so when i turned the book in i remember um my editor felt that I was too optimistic about vaccination. That um, there was sort of a throwaway line about, you know, well after everybody got vaccinated, da 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 da, and she really thought like that needs to come out. Though she liked the coverage of the pandemic, she liked the sort of you know, mix of mask wearing, which is kind of ironically where we are in New York right now. If you're on the subway, you have to wear a mask, but everything is open again, a funeral like the one in chapter one, you know, big funeral, no masks. like people can do that too. So we're in this weird in-between place, but the the page proof thing did happen because in copy editing, the vaccination line went back in <laughs> because at that point Yay! it was fall and we we knew that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were, were you know, would work even though they hadn't gotten official approval. So it, it was really funny because it was kind of head spinning like back and forth. It's the pandemic is in the background of the book, but one thing that I felt as a story storyteller that it really um kind of resonated with was the isolation of the two main characters because both Deirdre and Theo are people who are solitary by nature and the pandemic only emphasized that and so it's a, a way almost of explaining um you know, how out of touch they are. Like, you know, there's kind of a mention of how Theo spent several months in Europe when the pandemic started. So he didn't even, you know, see his wife and child for months. And so there's this sort of reason for the disconnect that was like a society-wide reason that affected everyone. Um, you know, not just a personal reason for it. So I, I really liked incorporating that in the book, but I, I will be honest, it was a struggle and it was very much touch and go until the end.
0: Well, it also, uh, uh, to me, it, it you mentioned that they're both characters that, that uh, sort of have isolated personalities that enjoy isolated lifestyles, but the pandemic sort of added this layer of, you know, sort of vague paranoia and unease. I think unease might be a better word than paranoia, uh, that... You know, once again, things might not be as they seem. This person might be uh, a carrier of the virus, and this person, you know, you don't, you don't really know when you encounter somebody, and and that can be metaphorical. I mean, I don't want to make light of this pandemic. I spoke to Anthony Horowitz last uh, fall, and and he said something that's resonated in my head ever since, which was, there is nothing good about this pandemic, nothing. Yeah. And I'm interested and I have been asking writers, not just about how they're marketing their books, but how now they're incorporating uh, it into the story. Those who did historical novels, obviously. So when I've I've talked to uh, uh, Susan McNeil, she doesn't have to deal with it. But when I talk to you, and I'm gonna talk to Anthony Horowitz, hopefully uh, later this year, how do writers as artists, as painters with words, This you mentioned you live in New York City on the east side, you must have heard the sirens going up and down to the to these hospitals, you said you did. How does that come out in your work and so that is interesting to me and I think interesting to people who are interested in the art of fiction, not just crime fiction but fiction. It is one of, I think, the sort of strange kind of contradictions with writing fiction
1: that as much as, you know, I've invented these characters and the story, I also want it to be set in the real world as much as possible. And so I always feel like... Every detail, the places that I write about, you know, almost always I'm using real places, Tudor City and um, you know, the church where the funeral happens, and pretty much all of those places, they're all real places. The settings in Berlin, the chapters that are set in Berlin, Germany, all based on real places. And it's sort of like by incorporating real settings, real events. I think you bring readers inside. This is their world too. And I know that there's this push right now that a lot of people are sort of saying, we're going to have a roaring 20s and it's going to be party, party, party and all of that. But, um, you know, I, I really don't think that everyone is ready and willing and able to jump forward like that and pretend like this didn't happen. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who lost family in this, a friend of mine died. Um, there's sort of, there's going to be emotional collateral that's going to follow us around. And I think almost the party, party, party mentality is an attempt to mask that to sort of, we're not going to be sad. We're going to focus on being happy and everything will be fine. And if as a society, we don't acknowledge it and we don't sort of, um, whether it's in art, whether it's, you know, in these different ways, kind of have a, a reckoning with it. You know, I, I think it's just going to trail after us. It, it was just such a time of suffering. And I think you kind of have to pay it its due. You, you have to acknowledge what happened and not just paper over it.
0: Well, I, I firmly believe that the country is is going through a bit of collective PTSD, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether yeah. they're um, you know, whistling by the graveyard and saying, you know, yes, it's time to party and cut loose. And I can see how younger people might feel uh, that way. But most people I know are approaching the new, the new normal, as they're calling it, with trepidation and yeah. hesitancy. Yeah. Uh, you know, those who have children. Uh, younger than 12 you know those kids haven't been vaccinated yet there's still some anxiety woven into their lives and i think there's anxiety woven into all of our lives you know what what it what's going to happen next it's you know it it, and we don't know so writers like you are going to help us interpret that which brings me to Two books in. Uh, you took a break from your series featuring, featuring Sharon Sterling and Rafael Mendoza, who I love. These two characters, to write her last breath, which I'm assuming is a standalone. But can yes. <laughs> yes.
1: I can promise you it is a standalone.
0: Definitely. Can you talk about the difference between writing a novel that's part of a series and a standalone? When we when we talked last year, you told me that your next book up, coming up was a standalone, and I was uh, both excited to read it and a little sad that I was going to uh, not get a chance to catch up with Sherilyn. Um So this is a roundabout way of asking uh, what you're doing in your next book, because I know you probably just push the send button.
1: <laughs> so um... I will say, having written, so I've written two different series at this point. So I started off, you know, in publishing, writing the Lily Moore series.
0: Which, has which is back books. in print, I might add.
1: And Yes, yeah, which actually that was one of the things in the pandemic. It was like, well, I have time on my hands. So I did what I had been planning to do since I got the rights back two years ago. And I brought the books back into print, which I am so glad and grateful to have done and I'm, I'm grateful for people who are sort of discovering the books you know for the first time and you know that that part is wonderful um, you know I wrote those three books and wrote a standalone and then wrote uh two books with Sharon and Raphael and then wrote a standalone and it's it to me there are these incredibly seductive charms on both sides so with the series it is Wonderful to start writing a book where you know your characters and where you know who you can trust in that book. Because when I'm writing about, you know, whether it's Sharon and her um, NYPD partner, Raphael, or whether I'm writing about Lily Moore and her best friend, Jesse, you know, those are two people that can trust each other. They have each other's backs. I am not going to blindside you by having one turn on the other, you know, partway through a book. There is a lot of trust there. But at the same time, that means that there's less freedom when I'm writing. And so doing a book like Her Last Breath, which is a standalone, it meant that you had no idea who you could trust. There was no sort of sure place in the book or sure footing that you could have and i do kind of you know pull the rug out from under the reader with some of the revelations as you get in and you think like but i i liked that person or i trusted <laughs> that person and yeah well, well our, here's more of the story i didn't like that person <laughs> right right exactly or you didn't like that person and here's like whoa you you just got inside their head and you understand where they're coming from and now you feel differently about them which is another like fascinating thing um so as a writer there's kind of like a bigger challenge and a greater freedom for me anyway for doing standalones and I feel a little bit like when I write short stories, I've always had that kind of freedom. I'm just diving into a world that I don't know, you know, and I'm spending a short time there. It's maybe five thousand words, well, whatever. And I've always loved doing that. And I think I've always been very nervous about doing that with novels because you're committing to, you know, ninety thousand words and you know a year of your life, and like it's a much bigger with commitment someone you don't know. Yeah, yeah, with someone you don't know and you don't know how it's going to turn out and, you know, because if, if I'm writing the series character, well, I, I know who the hero is. Like, I, I know, you know, their perspective, they might grow, they might change, but, you know, they're, they're still, their core character is set. But I will tell you one sneaky thing that I do, which is that there are little connectors between all of my books So the fictional world that they exist in, there will always be something that ties it to another of my books. So for instance, with Don't Look Down, you might've mentioned or noticed uh, mentions of a law firm called Casper Peters McNally which also appeared in Don't Look Down. It's named for three of my favorite booksellers, (laughs) in case you're wondering. But um, there are little things like that. Um, When uh, the first book with Sharon and Raphael came out, uh, One Small Sacrifice in 2019, there's actually a scene with Sharon Sterling and Nora Renfrew, who was one of the cops who was in the Lily Moore books. So there, there's always like some kind of connector. So I like to think of my characters because one thing that's hard with standalones is letting go of the characters at the end and saying, you know, that's the end of that story. I'm not going to pick that up again. That's hard. Like I'm, you know, the back of my brain is spinning like, well, what if I did this with, you know, no, no, I decided it was a standalone, just do that. Um, But I like to think that they coexist in this world. So in a way, you never know who might pop up in a book.
0: So uh, your your universes don't really, uh, there'll be no crashing of your universes. However, there might be little Easter eggs.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. It won't be like a mashup, like, you know, Lily Moore teaming up with Sharon and Raphael or anything like that. But, um, you know, Easter eggs, definitely some surprise appearances. Yeah, yeah.
0: How very vomit-dermot of you. <laughs> I have to say,
1: I love it when I, you know, made these little but I've noticed something in another writer's work where it's like, I think that might be connected to, it just, it's such a great feeling because you feel like you as the writer, that's, or the reader, that's your discovery that you're kind of connecting with the writer and noticing these things, so.
0: I have it, to go back and reread it now. <laughs> and I did, I did download uh, the Lily Moore books and I'm looking for. Oh, to- wonderful. To- oh, thank you. Um, thank you again for joining us. And and I I noticed that you danced around what your next book would be. Oh,
1: I'm so sorry. You know what? um, I have started working on another book. Um, It is a standalone, though, maybe spoiler alert, there might be a character or two you recognize who's in the background of the book. Um, But yeah, it's, um, I think just, it's not that I've given up on writing the series at all. but. I think I'm just enjoying that sense of freedom. When I thought about Sharon and Raphael and bringing the pandemic into their world, I felt very unsteady about how I would want to do that and cover that. And so it's, I think maybe easier for me to just tackle a fresh world right now. And so, yes, yeah, so I'm working actually on a new standalone right now.
0: Hillary, thank you again for joining us. and. Please excuse the froggy voice. I look forward to talking to you in 2022, maybe seeing you at an in-real life event sometime. I
1: hope so. I hope we'll be able to, you know, get back to conferences and things. I do miss seeing people. And we were supposed to meet at Left Coast Crime. We were, in, but we will um, March 2020. So yeah, no, I'm sad about that.
0: We will meet anon. In, in the meantime, I will see you virtually on your panels and your book your virtual book signings you are very kind i can tell you for sure because i'm actually
1: signing the books right now the poisoned pen in scottsdale Scottsdale. copies yeah if you if anyone wants signed copies the Poisoned pen will definitely (laughs) hook you up well thank you again thank you so much nancy it is always a pleasure talking to you and i can only hope that we're going to get to meet in the next few months hopefully we'll be able to do
0: that